This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Forever. Hey y'all, my name is Alex Berg and welcome to the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the nation's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary. And this podcast is an extension of both their reporting and of their mission. Each week, we focus on major topics affecting the LGBTQ community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. Since taking office, one of Biden's centerpieces has been reversing the restrictive immigration policies enacted under the previous administration. And given that Trump made more than 400 immigration-related actions during his time in office, you could say the Biden administration really has its work cut out. The child separation and asylum policies are among the most horrifying and shameful moments of the Trump administration. The images and stories that emerged while the family separation policy was happening, images of small children in camps or in the company of officers, along with images of caravans of migrants trying to enter the U.S., are unshakable. In early February, President Biden signed executive orders to begin the process of reversing these policies. For queer and trans individuals seeking asylum due to anti-LGBTQ hate in their countries of origin, these efforts don't come a moment too soon. Meanwhile, Biden issued an earlier executive order aimed at fortifying DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, to address the over 600,000 undocumented young people who grew up in the U.S. Today, we're going to be talking about what the Biden administration's immigration policies mean for undocumented LGBTQ folks and those seeking asylum, and what kinds of policies need to be put in place to ensure that queer and trans individuals can come here safely. I'll be talking to two informative guests on this topic, Aaron Morris, the Executive Director of Immigration Equality, and Julio Salgado, an artist who happens to be undocumented and queer. But first, the Equality Act has passed in the House. It's a step towards ensuring that LGBTQ people are protected by the 1964 Civil Rights Act and faces an uphill battle in the Senate. LGBTQ Nation Managing Editor Alex Bollinger is here to break down what happens next. Welcome, Alex. Hello, Alex. Thanks for having me on the show. So let's jump right into this. You wrote about the historic passage of the Equality Act in the House. What exactly would the Equality Act do? So the Equality Act would be, if it passes, it would be the biggest piece of LGBTQ legislation ever in the United States. Um, It does three main things. The first thing is, uh, and the biggest, is that it adds sexual orientation and gender identity to existing federal civil rights legislation, which means that there'll be protections against LGBTQ discrimination and employment, housing, public accommodation, and other areas. That's the biggest thing. But what it also does is it expands the definition of what a public accommodations is. So currently, the, the current federal definition of public accommodations is actually fairly limited. And under if the Equality Act passes, it would be expanded to include businesses, organizations like nonprofits that receive federal funds, as well as healthcare organizations and other things. And these new protections would apply to LGBTQ people, but also to all the categories that are currently protected under the Equality Act. And the third big thing that it does is it clarifies that the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act doesn't supersede civil rights protections. And this is a big deal. Because if people remember the famous Burl v. Hobby Lobby case several years ago, where Hobby Lobby argued that as a corporation, its religious beliefs prevented 
mean that it doesn't it has a religious exception to the Obamacare rule that required that it pay for contraception for its employees. That was actually not argued under the First Amendment, like many people believed at the time. It was argued under the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. And it has a more expansive idea of what a religious exception is to current law. So this law would say that that law can't prevent someone from getting access to their civil rights. Well, as the uh, House was in the process of passing uh, the Equality Act, I feel like I was just watching the mess that was happening. It was like the backlash was happening in real time uh, among the Republicans. So what kind of backlash have we already seen? Well, like you said, the backlash was extremely partisan. The bill passed with 220 votes, 224 votes in favor and 206 against it. All the Democrats voted in favor of it. The only people who voted against it were Republicans, and there were only three Republicans that voted in favor versus the 206 that voted against it. So going forward, we're going to see that, I mean, especially in the Senate, that this is going to be a partisan issue. And the main attacks were, I mean, the biggest ones were generally attacks on transgender people and specifically against transgender girls in sports and bathroom attacks, and then some scaremongering around doctors, that doctors will somehow be forced to perform surgeries or provide uh, hormone therapies that they don't want to. There's also some scaremongering around doctors and abortions, saying that doctors will be forced to perform abortions that they don't want to, which makes no sense at all. But these are the sorts of things that they were talking about. The next area of attack that they went for were religious exemptions. Because the Equality Act would say that civil rights supersede the RIFRA, it means that this is sort of a fertile ground for them to attack it from. One of the big points made against it is that religious organizations would not be allowed to discriminate against LGBTQ people. And they're framing this as an attack on religious freedom. Whereas if you look at the history of anti-LGBTQ discrimination, it often comes from a religious point of view. If you look at like the major cases over the past several years, like the adoption case brought by the Christian Social Services, which says that as a Christian organization, they should not be forced to provide adoption services for LGBTQ families. Or then the Masterpiece Cake Shop case then went to the Supreme Court where a baker argued that he shouldn't be forced to sell a cake to a gay couple because of his religion. It's more about creating a loophole so big that pretty much any form of discrimination against LGBTQ people could pass through. But this is going to become a big deal in the Senate because Mitt Romney from Utah has already said that the religious exemptions are the reason he's going to vote against it. We'll probably be hearing more Republicans saying exactly that, that the main focus is religious exceptions. They've already proposed an Equality Act compromise bill in the House focused mainly on the religious exceptions. All right. Well, we will continue to keep an eye and we'll have to have you back on to give us an update. Thank you so much for joining. Where can our listeners find you, Alex? Find me on Twitter at Alex B. Walker. Moving on to our conversation about immigration, I'm joined by Julio Salgado, an artist who happens to be undocumented and queer, and Aaron Morris, the Executive Director of Immigration Equality. Welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thank you for having us. I'm really excited to talk to you both. I know that this is a huge topic to try to unpack various elements of in a limited amount of time, um, but I'm excited to uh, get into it anyways. Aaron, starting with you, as I mentioned earlier, the Biden administration has a lot on its plate when it comes to immigration. Um, what has Biden done so far that's gotten your attention and what policies are you watching most closely? So, you know, one of the biggest frustrations we had as uh, advocates for immigrants under the Trump administration was the flurry of executive orders that the Trump administration put out. Sometimes it was one every two weeks that would horribly change the system and whose purpose was to 
make it impossible for as many people to come as he could and to break the system. And so there was there's a lot for President Biden to undo. And to his credit, there has been also a flurry of new executive orders. And they have been, you know, a little daunting to keep up with. But obviously, his team has put a lot of thought into this. And they're sort of knocking down the low hanging fruit first uh, about, you know, the, the more severely, um, the, the more severe, terrible human rights violations that the Trump administration was uh, putting out. But, you know, the reality is also that I think that a lot of people are, they feel this great sense of relief, like a, a weight is lifted. And I understand that. But a lot of what Trump did is also really long term. And it, you know, if you think about the, the final regulations that the Trump administration, particularly around the asylum system, was putting out and employment authorization was putting out in the last in December, right, the last month of his presidential tenure, he spent four years coming up with those regulations. And it was a huge priority for him. And one, the immigration equality challenged in district court, whose purpose was to prevent anyone from being granted asylum. You know, it was sort of his magnus opus. It was his, his, you know, his biggest focus on policy. And for the Biden administration, you can't just, you can't just wipe away federal regulations. It doesn't work like that. It takes probably years more. Thank goodness we've gotten We've gotten that horrible rule stayed uh, indefinitely while while the Biden administration makes new regulations. But even best case scenario, and we need to be very aggressive about making this a priority for this administration, it's going to take a long time to overcome. Julio, you make art, amplify stories, and tell your own story about being undocumented. Um, Granted, again, it's very early in the Biden administration, but how are you feeling about these efforts so far and the administration's efforts to preserve DACA? Hi again, thank you for for having uh, me to kind of share my experience as an artist who happens to be undocumented, right? Like, I I think that that's that's something that I've been dealing with (laughs) for, you know, since I can remember. Listen, I graduated high school in 2001. You know, that was the first year that the DREAM Act was brought up and proposed. And so, like, I've been doing this work (laughs) for a very long time. So if you ask anybody who is around my age that has been doing, whether, you know, it be organizing, um, you know, doing activism around immigrant rights, we are feeling a little bit uh, jaded when it comes to trusting the word of politicians, right? As Aaron mentioned, there was like this sort of relief after this past four years that we we encounter with the former president, but you can't help but feel a little bit, a little bit, you know, like mistrustful of politicians. Um, listen, you know, Obama, during the Obama administration, there was a lot of deportations. And so this idea that a political figure or politician will. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Save us. Uh, they can make policy. They can change policy. But at the end of the day, the reason why I, I'm very much about the, the, the artwork that I do, it's we need to change the culture. The anti-immigrant culture is one of the biggest things that need to change. Trump really rely heavily on this anti-immigrant culture um, and this idea that he was going to create a wall and 
it was it was the culture, right? And so I think that as an artist that is interested in changing that idea and in in showcasing our stories that are not just necessarily about pain all the time, even though that is real, but what are the things that are that we're hopeful? You know, what are the things that bring us happiness? What are the things that 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 we are doing? You know, during during the Trump administration, you know, yeah, there was sadness, there was fear. But there was also life in our community, right? Like the fact that I, the fact that I was able to create art in the midst of a painful <laughs> administration, you know, says a lot about the resilience of us as immigrants. Well, on that topic, um, you are known for your undocu queer art series. Why did you specifically want to highlight queer people in that art? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, as I mentioned, I'm also queer. <laughs> as <everybody laughs> said, uh, I'm blessed with being queer, and uh, I, I think uh, my, my. My biggest thing um, is is about documenting the work of of the folks who are behind the scenes, right? Like as an artist, a lot of my my work has definitely been informed by the work of organizers. In 2010, specifically, when we were super close to passing the Dream Act, and a lot of us started coming out as undocumented. I was noticing that in, in immigrant circles, we were talking about religion. Just because you're from migrant rights doesn't mean that, you know, you are also pro-LGBTQ, right? And similar, when I was in, in queer spaces, a lot of the, the conversations that I was hearing about was gay marriage, gays in the military, but we weren't, we weren't talking about um, the issues that queer immigrants and detention, uh, asylum seekers, you know, that was missing, right? And so I think that for me, it was about uh, this intersectionality, right? Like I'm not one without the other, you know, there's laws against me for being queer, for being undocumented. Uh, I started making this series around 2012 called I Am Queer, where I was highlighting activists from around the country. And not just, I didn't just want to stop at activists, but like just regular people <laughs> who were, who happened to be undocumented and queer. And those, those images were really a collaboration between myself and people in the ground who I was just, I literally just went on Facebook and I was like, if you're undocumented and queer, share, you know, share your story and, and I'm going to make these images. And, and so I think I, 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 I don't know who came up with that term, queer. I saw it on my, on my Facebook and I was like, yeah, that is a great term or, or, or you know, thing to to kind of highlight a specific thing that is the that it was very personal for me right and so it definitely starts with you know with me and, and being able to make these pieces and just put it out into the world that that was that was the sort of the purpose behind those images well one of the things you mentioned is that there are so many different elements uh to this and nuances to this topic in conversation there is of course the issue of detention there's also the issue of asylum so aaron honing in more specifically on lgbtq asylum seekers can you tell us a little bit about uh what is happening with queer and trans folks who are waiting to enter the U.S. right now? So unfortunately, there's been a a pretty full stop on anyone seeking to come to the United States on a temporary visa. It's really hard to get into the United States. And the sort of reason that the Trump administration and even the Biden administration are pointing to is because of COVID or the pandemic. Just this week, uh, Biden administration did open up permanent visas. So like if if you're looking for a green card, if you have a spouse abroad or a family member abroad, they will allow you to go ahead and, and ask for that and adjudicate those cases, which is a great first start. But there are so many people who have the ability to come to the United States and they're just being denied. For asylum seekers, it's always a little harder. Uh, you know, the southern border was shut down completely. There's a, a law provision that isn't really related to immigration, which they've, they've used to exclude people based on the pandemic. Um, and that really needs to stop. 
because the you know if, if the pandemic was only on one side of the border, that might make sense as a matter of public health, but it's not the way that this has worked. Um, so we're we're punishing you know refugees who are forced to wait in Mexico for months for months in really unsafe refugee camps. Uh, and those those are terrible for all, all kinds of asylum seekers, but for LGBTQ people in particular, it's really dangerous. And we're hearing just horror stories of people being attacked, beaten, uh, sexually assaulted, forced into sexual slavery. Like it, it's terrible what America has created on the other side of the border. And Biden has a very short window of time to come up with a solution. Now this program was called the Remain in Mexico or Migrant Protections Program, right? And so he stopped enrolling people in it. But there are thousands of people who are stuck and they need to come up with a solution. And it's moving very slowly. And every day that that continues, our community suffers. Yeah. When you think of solutions, I mean, you mentioned Biden has a very short window to be able to address this. What would you like to see happen? I think anybody who comes to our border to ask for asylum should be immediately paroled into the United States. You know, there are huge backlogs, both caused in part by the pandemic, but pre-existing Donald Trump, people who who file for asylum would, would wait years, both in court or at the asylum offices. And it's just not a way to run a country. I mean, that's not ju- that's not a justice system. That is such delayed justice that it's, that it's hard to call it that. Um, so I would say expedite people who need help, adjudicate their cases much more quickly, uh, provide people with work authorization while they wait. And, you know, really, as Julio mentioned briefly, like empty out the detention facilities. They serve no purpose. There's no purpose served for the government. You know, it's a huge money-making scheme for corporate America because most of them are private-run prisons with a profit motive. And, And while the number is the lowest it's been in years because they've shut down the border, there are still something like 15,000 people in detention facilities, which are just a nightmare for a pandemic. I mean, there's no way to stay safe in those facilities. Uh, you know, we had clients, a, a lesbian in particular in Louisiana, who didn't have soap for two weeks and didn't have toilet paper. I mean, they are unsanitary at the best of times. Every statistic shows that if an asylum seeker is released, they are 99% likely to show up for court. It's just a cruel, horrible way for the government to spend taxpayer money hurting people. And for queer people in particular, those are individuals who have really strong asylum claims. Yeah. When you mentioned some of the horrors of what's happening, I I can't help but think of some of these stories that stuck with me um, from under the Trump administration, particularly about what was happening to trans folks who were held in immigration detention. I mean, just a a range of horrors um, from being misgendered to actually facing fatal conditions. What information do we have about trans folks who are presently detained? Uh, I believe you mentioned there are still, we know of 15,000 people who are uh, being held in detention. Currently, you know, this is a this is a long existing pro- problem and happened uh, as much in the Obama administration as it did the Trump administration, where trans individuals, particularly trans women, were held in men's facilities. And, you know, it's just a recipe for disaster. They, it, it's, it's beyond just discrimination. They are they are 50. Like, I think our clients who were, were in that situation, more than 50 percent reported sexual assault. Like you can't put a woman in a men's facility. It's not a recipe for success. You know, the government's reaction to that was to start to put women in solitary confinement for their, quote, own protection. But, you know, that that's deeply psychologically damaging to the point that the U.N. has said that more than two weeks in, in solitary confinement is, is torture. And America was torturing these women. And so then 
uh, the government's solution was to try to put them all in one facility or to try to hub them in different different units where they were far from council in the middle of nowhere, got terrible health care. Um, you know, there was a, a facility in Cibola, New Mexico, where uh, all women died uh, for lack of HIV care. So there's a whole host of problems. And again, there's such an elegant solution to this issue, which is for these people who have such strong claims, the community that's so vulnerable in, in incarcerated facilities, this is civil detention. They haven't broken the law. Like they're not criminals. You, you need to let them out. Julio, I could see you not nodding along. Jump on in. No, yeah, I, I think, I mean, you know, my my biggest issue, you know, because, I mean, immigration is a, a queer issue, it's a trans issue, it's a Black issue. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it is about people showing compassion. You know, like, it's one of my, one of my biggest, as, as somebody who would qualify for the DREAM Act, my narrative was, look, America, I'm a good immigrant. I've done all I have to do. I went to school. I got good grades. I, you know, I'm a good member of society, yet still people d- didn't want me here. Right. And, and it got, to, it gets to a point where like, I'm like, I'm tired of convincing people of my humanity. If you just don't see me as a human being, I, I can't, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm done doing, you know, d- doing that, but, but, but this is why it's important, you know, like, you know, the work of, of attorneys and, and people working at, at the forefront of messing with this, you know, policies and like really, really changing and fighting back. It's like a lot of the times it's case by case, you know, like every case is different, but at the end of the day, it is about compassion. It is about, you know, the fact that would, wouldn't you do that for your family? We just passed a pandemic, which was another testing of human behavior and like how we care about each other. The fact that there's people inside of detention centers during a pandemic, I keep going back to this idea of me being, you know, a little bit jaded. I wasn't surprised. You know, I wasn't surprised that that people felt this way because because there is this feeling of like, oh, it's just there's just a number. You don't see their faces. If you don't see somebody's face, it's so easy to just ignore it and, and, you know, go by like nothing is happening. A lot of the times, yeah, there's facilities behind, like, you know, far away from, from cities. Sometimes we have facilities like, you know, I'm, I'm, I was near downtown LA where they keep, you know, immigrants, um, you know, in detentions. And like a lot of people did not know that was, uh, you know, a place where there's detained immigrants, right? Like it can happen behind our backyards. And it also happens in places far away from, you know, from where people can reach them. One of the things that I always kind of think about is that when there was hypervisibility of these issues, when we saw lots of really impactful images in the news, it seemed like people really were paying attention. And then I worry that people, you know, when they're not seeing it every single day, being on the the front page of the news, that it's kind of something that, again, people forget about or move on to other issues in their lives or related to the pandemic or something like that. But Julio, one of the things that you you had mentioned before is that, you know, you've you've been watching this play out since 2001. And I think in your activism, I, I saw that you have traveled to a lot of different states and talked to a lot of different folks. So what have you heard from other LGBTQ undocumented folks about what they want to see happen now? Again, one of the biggest things that, that, that people, we are all in agreement of is changing the culture, changing the immigrant, the anti-immigrant narratives that we have out in, you know, from TV, the news, et cetera, right? I'm also a program manager for the Center for Cultural Power. And our goal is to make sure that immigrant artists 
queer artists, um, you know, just overall people of color are able to tell their stories in more nuanced ways to have some sort of change in policy, right? And this is an example that I use all the time in terms of like how it connects to the queer community. If you think about the 90s when Ellen DeGeneres, you know, uh, came out of the closet, when Will and Grace, uh, you know, a show that I loved growing up, and, you know, if you think about who was who were writing these shows, right, like, you know, the co-creator Will and Grace was a gay man who was direct experience, you know, was able to have a change in pop culture. And while Hollywood might seem so like, you know, like, what is that going to, it changes a lot. People started, you know, really changing their views on queer people, gay marriage started changing, right? And so like, I think that as I go around the country and listening to different stories, not one single story is exactly the same, but at the end of the day, we all want this sort of, you know, there's this idea of representation and visibility, but like, how are we changing the systems, um, you know, that a lot, who gets to tell those stories, right? And so we just put out uh, a fellowship for creators of color who want to write for TV and they want to get those scripts. And they're like, my dream of changing and, you know, this, this narratives of immigrants. And one of the groups that we are focusing is on undocumented creatives who want to work on their craft to tell these stories, right? I feel like there's, there's some, there's a long way <laughs> to go. It, it is possible as long as we keep telling our stories and we keep coming out, you know, people ask me all the time, are you afraid of telling people you're undocumented? I'm not. I'm not because I know that the more of us are out there, you know, the more people are going to have my back. And that came directly from coming out of the closet uh, movements, right? Like the more you come out, the more community you're going to have. And we all kind of have our lanes. And as an artist, that is my lane. My lane is to make sure that we change the anti-immigrant uh, narrative. Aaron, for our, our listeners who are feeling like they want to engage more with this issue, is there anything that they can do to support LGBTQ asylum seekers and LGBTQ people navigating the immigration system? So just, yes, and just a thought on, on um, narrative, because I couldn't, I couldn't agree with Julio more. And I think part of the humanization of the immigrant community is to remind Americans how good immigrants are for the nation. Um, when they bring new business, innovation, creativity, all, all of that diversity of experience has always made America a better place to live, more prosperous, more pleasant, and more successful. So it, I think it's both. I think it's personal stories and like beating back this stereotype that is so untrue that we've had for so long. So what do you do about it? I mean, there are a lot of ways to get involved. If, if you are a person who uh, has the skill set of a being an attorney, we have a pro bono attorney program. So we try to match up as many immigrants with free lawyers as possible. Um, you, could, you could find us at immigrationequality.org. If you are an activist or just an everyday person, we also have action alerts to say, like, you know, a bill is moving and the DREAM Act should move. I have, a, I mean, if, of all the bills in Congress, the, it has such bipartisan support and such public support. Like it's something over 70% of the public. When that starts to go, we have to have a full court press. And every queer person needs to be as involved as every queer immigrant. Um, and so action alerts, petitions to the State Department, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of uh, value in numbers because it raises our political capital. And we really need Biden, who the Biden-Harris administration, who's putting themselves out as not just pro-immigrant, but also pro-queer, to keep the word that they're promising. And when they don't, we can just scream at them for it. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of squeaky wheels in the world and there's a lot of problems that, that, that this administration has to fix. We have to be sure that we're not last. We need to be front and center. And the only way to get that done 
is to be constantly, vigilantly stop talking about it, talking about it in the media, demanding it from our, our representatives, both on the state and federal level. Julio, I could see you nodding along. Yeah, I, I, I just I couldn't agree more. Right, like there's there's this there's this so much that every single person can do. Right, like especially we're thinking of you know every a lot of people are stuck at home, but also there's a a lot of immigrants right now are out there. You know, as essential workers, a lot of DACA folks were working the front lines, whether it be in the medical field, um, delivering your food. I don't want us just to think of immigrants as you know bodies that work. You know, that's why, again, it's important to like, you know, really be very nuanced about immigrants, like immigrants also, you know, we're imperfect. Right. And, and, and so I think I think it's it's important that that to see us as human beings like that's the that's the the bottom, like the bare minimum that people can do. Right. Like, you know, see us as human beings and also in terms of like actual things that you could do, if, you know, any uh, artists out there that want to get involved, you know, and you want to apply for the fellowship, which is due March 19 uh, artistdisruptors.org. You know, you can go. And you know, and apply. I, I, I get there's very limited options where people can go and you know, as artists, just just work on your craft. This, this is a good opportunity. But there are many. Another organization that I want to give a shout out, Familia uh, Queer and Trans Liberation Movement. It's an amazing organization that does mutual aid and 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 highlights uh, uh, deportation cases of trans and queer uh, folks in the country. Um, well, before you go, Julio, I have to ask you, um, I watched this uh, really delightful documentary that followed you when you went and saw a piece of your art that's in the Smithsonian. Um, I feel like I'd be remiss not to ask you, what is your favorite piece of artwork that you've made? I mean, I would imagine uh, one that lands in the Smithsonian must be p- pretty high on the list, but but what's your fave one? Oh my God. Yeah, that that is a hard question. Uh, I mean, first of all, it, it was, you know, I, I want to, uh, giving a shout out again, my best friend, uh, Jesus Iñiguez, who... The name of the film is My Name is Julio, a short film by his best friend, Jesus Iñiguez. We met in, in college together. We were both undocumented students, uh, you know, who eventually graduated and were, you know, trying to, again, you know, change these narratives. A lot of the narratives around DACA folks is that they're, they're children. I'm 37 years old. <laughs> I am not, I'm no longer youth, right? Like, I don't, I don't think I, I fit. Call me young. Any, 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 uh, you are, you are actually considered towards the older end of millennials as a fellow older millennial, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, uh, after all these years of, of doing work and, and, you know, being asked to be part of, of this, this exhibit, which is at the Smithsonian right now, right now, uh, printing the revolution, it was an honor to be asked to be part of this show with, with amazing folks that have been doing this work before me, right in the Chicano movement. And it was amazing to have my best friend Jesus film the whole thing. And I think one of the reasons, of, you know, it's kind of, oh my God, do something about me, but really like putting myself as an example of like, look, there's more than pain, right? Like there's this, there's this story that not a lot of media is capturing in terms of like, you know, undocumented DJs, undocumented, uh, you know, artists, creatives, filmmakers, we are there, we're, we exist. And, and I wanted to, to balance the narratives that are out there. So if you want to see the film, it's on YouTube for free. My name is Julio. Um, and I'm just, I, I'm still in awe that we were able to, you know, film in, in, at the Smithsonian. And if, you know, hopefully we can open places soon and people can go check it out. But uh, on if, if you go to the Smithsonian and, you know, you look up the show, uh, May 13, I will be doing a, com- we'll be in conversation with, with the Smithsonian. Excellent. Well, we will definitely have to look out for that. Thank you both so much for joining me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, can I just have 
One thought on the Equality Act. Please do. The right would have you believe that this is a fight over religious freedom, but that's not what this is at all. And I think words matter. What this is, is a license to discriminate. Um, They're asking for a special license in order for them to discriminate. And if you think about how absurd that is, it would be like saying someone, someone saying, it is my deeply held religious belief that I need to fire all the black people who work for me. And you can't do that because it's against, it's discriminatory, it's against the law, and we deserve the same protection. It's not a right. It's not a religious right. It's a license to discriminate. Julio, how are you thinking about the Equality Act uh, in relation to, to, to all this? I, I couldn't agree uh, more with Aaron. I mean, I grew up uh, very religious. You know, I wanted to be a priest. You know, a lot of people don't know that, but I, I wanted to be a priest, right? And so coming to the realization that, yeah, there's people who like hide behind religion to push for for laws that could kill people. Like, right? Like, you know, it it again, right? Pushes, you know, and, and this this laws also have an effect on on culture and the way that people see it's like if there's a law that could that, you know, if the law says that you could discriminate, that means that you're less than, right? And so I couldn't agree more that, you know, like license, license to discriminate is the best way to to put it. And so I, you know, I, again, change, 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 and we can't do it alone. Uh, you know, we need more people to, sh- you know, speak up on how a lot of these laws, whether it be anti-immigrant law, anti, you know, queer and tr- anti-trans, like we need to continue pushing back to this politicians that talk a lot, a lot during, you know, election time. But when it comes to doing policy, like how are they, how are they moving? Uh, you know, what part of history are they, they standing on by actually doing things, you know, by actually making change uh, when it comes to policy. Well, I'm so glad that we got to touch on that. Um, Now I'll say thank you so much to you both. Um, Julio, where can people find your work? You can find me on Instagram at Julio Salgado 83. And again, if you want to apply for the fellowship, artistdisruptors.org is the place to go. Aaron, where can folks find your work? Either um, on all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Immigration Equality, or at our website, immigrationequality.org. Each week, after we talk about the news, I like to leave you with a story that's bringing me joy. I'm obsessing over this moment from the Golden Globes when Jodie Foster won. Foster won Best Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture for her role in The Mauritanian. When she won, she was sitting on her couch and thanked and kissed her wife, Alexandra Hedison. Foster said that she was a little speechless. I just never expected to ever be here again. This was just such a sweet and normal moment. Foster came out in a 2013 speech at the Globes and married her wife a year later. We talk so much about how LGBTQ representation in fictional stories is important, so it was gratifying to see someone thriving who's been in front of the camera forever. It's easy to take for granted how many celebrities are out now, and seeing Foster and her wife and the normalcy of it all was a good reminder of how far we've come in a not very long time. Congrats, Jody. Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Bill Browning, and Melissa D. Montz. Forever. Dog.